it's beginning to feel a lot like Christmas. And it if sure you is. are, <laughs> it is, isn't it? I know. And and if you're looking for something, the perfect gift for a friend or for yourself, I recommend, maybe you can recommend it because it sounds really self-serving and narcissistic when I recommend it. Um, the wonderful oral history of Star Trek, uh, the 50-year well, mission. Would that be the 50-year mission? Uh, volume one be. and two? Volume one. Now, I want to make an important distinction. Volume one, available now in paperback. Volume two, only in hardcover still. Right. So, But you can get the audio version, get the digital version. You can get them all. Because maybe them you all. want them get all. Get all of them. You know, because that would be ideal. I, I would prefer <laughs> you get them all. Because I had my, my druthers, as they say. And then, of course, also our other books, which are worth checking out. Nobody Does It Better, also available in hardcover and now in paperback. That's about uh, James Bond, isn't it? How'd you guess? I just it's about James Bond because nobody Indeed. does it better. That's why it's a great book about James Bond. So as you get ready for the inevitable release of uh, No Time to Die sometime in the next decade, there's no time um, to release. <laughs> you want to pick up No Time to Die again, also available on digital audio and in hardcover and paperback from uh, from Tor Forge. And uh, if you want to do a deeper dive, check out uh, So So Say We All our oral history of both Battlestar Galactica series, which is only available in hardcover. And I don't believe there's an audio book. I just think a digital. I'm not sure why they didn't do an audio book. Maybe, uh, maybe, maybe we can I'll, do something about that. Maybe we will. Maybe we'll just record <laughs> our own and we'll, we'll show them. So uh, anyway, uh, if you're thinking about the holidays and wondering what to get, please uh, check out uh, my books uh, with Ed Gross, The 50-Year Mission, Volume 1 and 2, so Say We All, an oral history of Battlestar Galactica, and most recently, Nobody Does It Better, a complete oral history of the James Bond films and Spy Mania. Ed Gross will thank you. Hey, Darren, have you been watching us on uh, the Electric Now app? I have. I haven't recently because I, I, I watch you pretty much every week when we're doing these things. But Yeah, but, you know, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, you know what I love about it's, the Electric Now app? It's better it's on so video. It's so easy to use. It's, it's, it's better really on video. Easy. Download got, the app and you watch us. That's all there is to it. It's so and, simple. And a lot of other cool stuff, too. You go to the App Store. It says Electric Now. You download it. And then it. in press, the United States. Press the button. And there it is. There it is. And you can choose. You can bookmark it. There's plenty of other movies and TV show to enjoy. And episodes of all your favorite Electric Surge podcasts. So why wait? Download the Electric Now app and start enjoying us anytime. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Dockerman, and we are the inglorious Trexperts. Ta-da! <laughs> we, we haven't cleared that music. We can't use that. I'm oh, sorry. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, uh, we, got a, we, we have a really interesting guest today. I'm very excited. Um, uh, David Hirsch. David Hirsch was one of the original writers and editors over at um, Starlog Magazine back in the... Uh, mid to late 70s and and going on to the early 80s and um 
it was a different era for sci-fi journalism. It's when you could really have a, a really deep relationship with the filmmakers and the producers. Um, you were the only game in town and Starlog was truly one of the only games in town. Right. So he's great stories about Jerry Anderson, Gene Roddenberry, uh, the restoration of the enterprise model, a lot, a lot of great stuff. And um, it's interesting because he's now an optician, but he still, you know, is a true, um, has a passion for, for what, what he loved as a student right out of college where he yeah. was covering this stuff for, for Starlog. And I, I love these, these episodes we do where it captures that era of what it was like before, I won't say before the dark times, before the <laughs> empire, but before, you know, uh, all this stuff was so ubiquitous. Yeah. And there was just came, this hunger. Before it became commonplace. Mm-hmm. Where, 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 where the, the thought of Star Trek coming back after it was canceled in 1969 was such a novel concept that we could yeah. hardly believe it you know and then of course in the wake of the cancellation of the movie and then the tv series and then the movie you know you you, you just sort of became numb to it all and you thought it's never going to happen there's never going to be star trek again you know or at least we'll have our memories of it and um and and you know the thought of you know certainly after one season battlestar galactica ever coming back is absurd and and you'll see much to your, you know our, our viewers perhaps consternation we we take a lot of time to discuss space 1999 again we, i don't know what's going on we mark we i i we were <laughs> complicit in that and you know the funny thing is i'm not even that big a space 1999 <laughs> fan i don't know why i'm so fascinated by it um I, because we talked about it at length two weeks ago on the show, and you'll see we talk about it a great deal. I mean, look, part of it was because of his friendship with Jerry Anderson and, uh, you know, seeing he had all those great um, uh, uh, miniatures there of the eagle and everything. So, uh, but David's a real interesting guest. It's, 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 um, it's, uh, I think you're going to enjoy it. I think, uh, especially for our fans who, uh, who lived through that era. And if you haven't, I think you'll find it equally interesting because the, uh, um, the pre-internet era is um, will make you appreciate even more. I think what you have uh, now, uh, in the, for the most part. Yeah, agreed. Um, so, anyway, without uh, any further ado, let's have uh, uh, writer, um, editor, optician, uh, and uh, scholar uh, David Hirsch join us on the show. And uh, here we are with David Hirsch and. Um, David, it, you know, it, it's exciting to talk to you because we've been focusing a lot. I don't know if some people would call it nostalgia or just the fact that there was this huge it was it's hard for a younger audience to understand what fandom was like in the mid to late 70s and early 80s when there was this dearth of, of, of product. And when something came along like a Buck Rogers or, or what you were you're a, or Space 1999, you were so excited because it just by its very existence and i think that's something that now you know in the um the cynicism and darkness of the internet where every show has the people who either love it or absolutely despise it and there's very little middle ground things have, have changed and i think it's part of why we sort of plowed this ground of remember when you know when when, when there was nothing out there you know when star trek the motion picture seemed like uh, a dream that would never come to fruition so oh, yeah. <laughs> I'd love to, to hear from you sort of, you know, because you were there at the very beginning of, of, of Starlog when it was, um, you know, a gleam in, you know, uh, in, 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 in Kerry O'Quinn's eye, you know, and it ultimately uh, 
uh, became something very important to, I think, the fandom. But you, you were so involved in covering so many of these seminal shows in those early days. Tell us a little bit about sort of your, your background and how you got involved uh, and, and in this era of uh, genre uh, well, journalism. In a, in a sort of long, long about way, I was in college, my first year of college, um, I think around the time the magazine started uh, with issue one, which had that great Star Trek cover. And uh, I was taking a film appreciation class and I wanted to write a paper for the final on Jerry and Sylvia Anderson. But, you know, being the dark days where there was no internet and you couldn't find any books, the only thing I could do was summon up courage and walk into uh, ITC New York and see if anybody would talk to me and give me some kind of research material. And I went down to their offices on, I think it was 555 Madison Avenue at the time. And I ended up being directed to Rob Mandel, who was the son of Abe Mandel, head of the company. And Rob and I got along well. He gave me tons of stuff to write the paper. And we kept in touch after that. And when Starlog was going to do the Eagle Blueprints with Jeffrey Mandel, he advised them to contact me and bring me in because I knew more about uh, the ship than anybody and could help Jeffrey with the blueprints. And Starlog brought me on as a summer intern. We got along really well. And I decided to accept their uh, uh, offer to stay on uh, instead of going back to school. So uh, I worked my way up basically from um, mailroom boy and contributor to associate editor over five and a half years. So genre was something that you were really interested in. I mean, oh, yeah. definitely a passion of yours. Oh, yes. And what was it about? <laughs> I feel like now a lot of all of a sudden it's become the Space 1999 show. What was it about Space 1999 that spoke to you that you, you, know, you became their in-house Space 1999 guy? Well, it wasn't just Space 1999. I was sort of like the in-house TV guy. Um, Howard Zimmerman, who had taken over around the time that I started, uh, Howard was into uh, literature, comic books, and that was, that was his focus. So because I basically watched anything that came on, and I had remembered all the shows from the 60s, I was into a lot of uh, uh, the Japanese uh, Ultraman and the Godzilla films. So I, I kind of brought in these like little niche areas that everybody else had not had as much experience with. And, you know, I was also passionate about them. So um, I was able to fill in certain areas that readers might not see in other magazines. Um, you know, Star Trek was still, you know, it had done its syndication run. We had the animated series, but it was an on and off battle for years, whether or not we were going to do Star they were going to do Star Trek phase two before the movie came about. And luckily we got Susan Sackett to write an occasional column about what was happening. You know, this week the bridge is built for phase two, yeah, then the yeah. bridge is being redesigned for the movie. You know, we had things like that going on. Um, so you had to depend on people that you could hook on, hook up to who knew the product that was going on, whether it's they were in the business or they were fans in order to do the kind of research that you can now easily do on the internet. It was, there weren't that many books or anything on these shows. As an aside, I have to say, 
it's a hoot to go back and read those old Susan Sackett columns, oh, yeah. uh, you know, in retrospect, because, you know, 99% of it never came to fruition or is just, you know, absolutely these absurd uh, things that are, are, are apparently in the offing. Um, but but I remember as a kid, you know, just living and dying by that column. Like that yeah. was our only source of information yeah. as to what was going on with the movie. Right. Uh, we and were the, just the TV as, series. Yeah, we were just as excited whenever we would get uh, her reports in, you know, right. what's going on. We wanted to know ourselves being fans. Um, and I think that made, I think that's what made Starlog really kind of different from the other magazines and kind of special is the fact that we didn't talk down to our audience. We weren't as critical as say Son of Fantastique uh, or even some of the other one shots that came along where they would, they would put something on the cover and then you'd read it and go, but they don't really like this. Why is it on right. the cover? Um, if we really liked something, I think we'd cover every angle of it. If there was a product that we weren't as enthusiastic about, you might see one or two pieces, but we never, you know, shot it down so that uh, a reader would feel that we were sliding them. And I think that's what's so impressive about that first 10 years of, of Starlog. You know, it's sort of what Coppola said about, uh, they said about The Godfather. You could smell, you know, the the, the sauce. You could smell when, in watching The Godfather. You could smell the love of genre in reading Starlog. And of course, you know, ultimately, you know, it's it, it sort of, later on became, yeah, that was very much a stock and trade, not criticizing anything, which is, I think, why, you know, basically later I became much more of, and I ended up writing for Cine Fantastic because I liked the fact that it was more honest. But I think those first, you know, that first 10 years of Starlog is just is phenomenal. And what you alluded to in terms of these cash-in magazines that other people were doing, it's true. When Starlog first came out, there was nothing like it. I mean, again, we yeah. need to re remind our younger people, yeah. you know, the internet was 30 years off. Oh, magazines yeah. were really the only thing where you could get this information. Uh, when a magazine came out with Star Trek on the cover, it was unprecedented uh, to, to, you know, when Starlog number one showed up at your local drugstore or bookstore, uh, it was incredible. And really, I think the Cashin magazines didn't really come out until Star Wars. Yes. Uh, so you had yeah. really a year or so to yourselves before everyone, their brother. And these were mostly bigger publishing companies that were just looking to cash in on on uh, on the success of Star Wars, because there must have been like 12 magazines that never went more than three issues. Right. Uh, Star Wars changed everything. I mean, right. if you even if you look at the cover, the you know, the evolution of the covers of Starlog, we we all started out with paintings you know, the cover itself was almost a work of art. Yes. And as it went along, suddenly the cover got more and more crowded because you had to put eye-catching things on the cover for it to be seen on the newsstand. Right. Um, that was that was your goal. And um, within the, the time that I was there, I mean, we lived and died between the three Star, Log, the Star Wars movies because mm -hmm. uh, those were the big sellers. Yeah. Well, I remember, I remember, uh, you know, going to, you know, various newsstands in supermarkets and all that. And the joy of seeing a new issue up on the stand um, and seeing all the stuff that you guys had crammed into every issue was such a fun and exciting thing. I mean, you guys were transferring your enthusiasms to the readers and it was really fun because 
you know, because we had to wait a whole month for a new issue, <laughs> um, the stuff that was inside it really carried us through the month. You know, yeah. there was so much stuff to uh, to enjoy, and some of the some of the stories had you know asides to other things that that um, you know more entrenched fans knew about, but that uh, myself as as a younger uh, reader didn't know. Uh, but that made me search out for this other stuff that you guys were talking about. And it was it was really fun to sort of expand uh, the fandom that way. Well, that was one of the great things about the pre-internet days. Uh, if you got hold of somebody who was in the know, like yeah. B. Joe, Susan Sackett, you would find out things that weren't commonly known. Right. Um, nowadays, it's hard to see find something you don't know about a show because there's so much out there. So it, it's unusual suddenly when a, a book, say a book comes out and it's like, wow, I never knew this. I never saw this picture before. Right. Um, I'm still surprised when uh, pictures show up on Facebook from TV shows. And it's a picture I've never seen before. It's like, where did that, where was that hidden all these years? I'm amazed there's still uh, pictures from James Bond movies that I've never seen. You know, they, they keep showing up. Uh, the the it's uh, from, you know, from Thunderball, from Russia with Love. It's like, how have I never seen that photo before? But I have to say, in reference to what you guys were saying, one of the things I loved about Starlog was in that that column that Howard Zimmerman used to write at the in the back page was it always said next issue, and not only would it preview what was in next issue, it would have the date in which the issue was going to come out, and I would always put that on my calendar and then go <laughs> out and try and find the issue literally just before I had a subscription. Uh, oh yeah, it, it became it became like you know like a TV show where where you knew when your air date was, um, and things that we couldn't cram into the issue we knew was going to go into the next issue, yeah. which is a question of finding a spot. Because we were always running out of, it, there were times when we ran out of room constantly. And know? people forget how successful that magazine was. I mean, the first issue of Starlight sold out. Now, in publishing, if you sell over 30% of your issues that are 32, 34% of your issues on the newsstand, that's considered successful. Um, you, you were selling out 100% of your entire print run, which right. is extraordinary. Uh, I mean, that's how successful this magazine was. And of course, it ended up spinning off Future Life and right. Fangoria, which was yeah. briefly called Fantastica. Right. Yes. And, and Fangoria, I think, has had a, a, a complete life of its own since, which is terrific. Because uh, I only worked on, I think, the first few issues of the magazine with Bob Martin before um, you know, I got too busy on other projects. Sure. And and then there were the photo guidebooks as well, and all yeah, the merchandise. Oh, yeah. I loved yeah. I loved all of those. Loved so the photo guidebooks were great, but those depended on bookstores. I mean, Walden sure. Books, Barnes and Noble, the uh, when they stopped buying them, they weren't as interested in stocking them. Uh, my last book actually got canceled before it went to publication. What uh, was it? Do you remember? Yeah, it was Sci-Fi Vehicles. Mm. So we had some great stuff. I actually, uh, on one of my trips to England, I got to ride in one of the cars from UFO. And the guy who owned the car actually wrote a piece on how he acquired the car, how he uh, fixed it up because he put hydraulic rams in so the gullwing doors opened automatically instead of manually. Uh, we got to ride in it. It was, it was great. That was like going to be one of my centerpiece articles for it. Um, I 
I want to talk about because obviously now when the latest Star Wars shows up on the cover of Vanity Fair and <laughs> Star Trek is, you know, it's being mainstream. covered. Yeah. It, it's super mainstream, right? Is, so the, the niche magazines don't get the access. They're lucky if they go on a junket and there are 40 people there oh, and yeah, they, they all get the same mean. quotes. But oh, back in the day when you were covering it, and to a certain extent, you know, in the 80s when I was doing it, late 80s and 90s, it was a different kind of relationship you have with the talent. because no, they, they were, loved us. They loved mm-hmm. us. They, they came, you know, out of the woodwork to to beg us to put a, a, them in the magazine. Um, we had a great relationship with the publicists over at Paramount, over Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Um, Star Wars was always a little bit of, a, of an issue because they were always trying to keep things secret. Mm-hmm. And um, I was good friends at the time with the late Dave Prowse. And he told me that they Lucas had a leak list as to who said something they shouldn't have. Mm-hmm. And they would have things like, you know, Harrison Ford, Time Magazine, uh, Carrie Fisher, uh, uh, Rolling Stone, Dave Prowse, Starlog 27 times. Right. You know, it was <laughs> it was it was crazy. I mean, um, and I, I, Kenny Baker actually called me up when I was in England once. We were supposed to do an interview and he said, look. I found out Dave Prowse spilled the beans to you about Empire Strikes Back. I can't talk to you. I don't want to lose my job. And I'm like, going, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and then you also had this unique relationship with Jerry Anderson. Tell us a little bit about how that all came about and sort of your working relationship there. Well, one of the first things I did with Starlog after Jeff did the uh, blueprints was we did the tech manual, of course, for Space 1999. Um, and that was done over a summer um, before Jeff and Anthony Fredrickson, who did the costume art, went to college. Um, and, you know, I know you guys wa- want to talk about the, uh, the undone uh, supplements. But, uh, <laughs> I was just going to ask you. <laughs> yes, I know. That's <laughs> Rob Burnett's uh, still waiting. <laughs> right. Just, just to get the story was the money that I made from my initial uh, payment for the book, I flew to England and I had been given a list from ITC of contact information for people who worked on the show. And Jerry was the one I wanted to meet. And I was able to get a hold of him. We set up a meeting where I was going to meet him out. Um, I think he was at, um, was it? No, MGM closed. It was L Street. Mm-hmm. And it was a week before Christmas. I got to the studio an hour before my meeting and sat out on a bus stop bench for almost an hour in the freezing cold because I was too embarrassed to come up early. Um, But Jerry and I hit it off. I got uh, Jerry to write a a column occasionally for the magazine, which I had to supplement when he was too busy. Mm -hmm. And um, I was supposed to work with on on several projects that never happened with Jerry, Um, like Five Star Five, which was a big deal. I was actually in England for two weeks doing pre-production out of... um, one of his offices and the project collapsed, which was a shame. In, in retrospect, what is, what was, why, why do you think you connected so much with, with Jerry? And um, do you feel that had space 1999 had an additional season, you know, maybe that would have been the one that sort of put it over the top in a sense or. Well, well, no, I think what, I think as you discussed last week, what happened with space, of course, was Lou Grade wanting to go on to films. Mm -hmm. And because of that, Lou kind of shut Jerry out. 
Um, I don't know why after space he did that, um, but because with the relationship Jerry had with Lou all those years where on a handshake, they would go and do a series. Jerry now had to go out and try and hustle um, backing for projects. So he was constantly uh, pitching projects. Uh, in some cases he got shut out of them. Like he was supposed to do, he wanted to do this romantic adventure film where he's telling me he's gonna use the 007 stage. They're gonna build, they're gonna fill it with an under, you know, fill the underwater tank and shoot this big underwater battle sequence a la Thunderball for a story about a man who's going to rescue his wife from Southeast Asia, who's being held prisoner. And it sounded good. He was going to bring Derek Mendings in. The next thing I hear, it's a TV movie starring Michael Landon. And Jerry was completely shut out of the whole project. So there were a lot of projects that came in like that. Shape of Things to Come. He originally was going to do the visual effects for Harry Allen Towers. That felt through. And Harry Allen Towers actually got me into trouble because he submitted artwork to Starlog, pre-production artwork, to do... Um, a, um, a you know for publicity and it turned out it was all art that jerry had done for day after tomorrow mm. and we were getting legal notices from jerry's lawyers about a cease and desist and i'm like going oh it wasn't our intention to do this but uh, he ran into a lot of problems over the years with that and it's unfortunate until terrorhawks came along and then he was able to get a project off the ground right 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 it's and and, and Go ahead, Darren. No, I was just going to say that it's it's interesting that um, the focus of the of the magazine um, sort of changed a little bit when the uh, when genre movies became you know more mainstream. Oh, absolutely! You know, in the in the you know uh, early to uh, mid eighties, yeah. when you know that was the that was the deal of the day. Um, it, it seemed as if you became less uh, cheerleaders and more of just sort of uh, the, the document of them. Um, how, how did that change your dealings with the studios and the publicists at all? I think they were more in control. Uh, instead of begging us to put things on, I think we had to go begging to them. Right. Uh, um, and the more mainstream magazines that started showing uh, interest, the less they were interested in a genre magazine. Sure. Because if you can get into Time Magazine, Vanity Fair, whatever, uh, you're going to reach a broader audience than you would with um, the genre. And it, it was always considered a given that, oh, the genre audience is going to see the movie anyway. Right. We right. want to get, you know, it's like it's, it's the Star Trek four phenomenon. Um, right crossing over to people who would normally not see a Star Trek movie. We have to keep going for that audience. Right. You got to keep going for the quote normals. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Because again, they're the ones who are going to say, nah, I don't want to see that. There's an interesting parallel with, with how uh, um, San Diego Comic-Con uh, sort of uh, uh, got sponsors and people to, uh, to display their wares. Um, that felt a little odd to me because the the crowd at San Diego Comic Con are going to all these movies anyway, mm -hmm. right? And and it seems uh, it seems a little bit like preaching to the choir, but perhaps some of that enthusiasm that is generated from that gives them 
more sort of exposure in, in other uh, forms of media to uh, say, well, maybe, you know, maybe other people are missing out on this. Right. Well, I, I think the fact that you've got this enthusiastic audience helps with the publicity right. on the actual uh, films and whatever. Um, again, you know, th this is this is going back to really even things with television movies, how um, when you were talking about Space 1999 and the first season versus the second season, um, you have people who have an idea of the creative input they want to do. Right. And then you have the money men who are going, no, impress us. We're not into this. Right. Um, because, you know, like uh, John was talking about Johnny Burns' critical uh, analysis of the show. There were, ep like we, you were talking about Guardian of Peary. The reason we didn't see more planets like Peary was that Abe Mandel put his foot down and said, I don't want to see nonsense like this. This is ridiculous looking. Um, he killed that. He killed that. He killed um, Black Sun with all its metaphysical stuff. They watched that episode and they said, don't do something like that again. Uh, that's why the second season became more mainstream uh, as far as more, you know, Buck Rogers space fantasy, because that's what they understood. And that's the only reason right. they you know, would roll over a show because, oh, we could sell it to the people who are buying the show for their station, even though they're not into science fiction, but, oh, yeah, maybe this will appear to a broader audience and we can make money off of it. Right. So you're well, theoretically, um, we're, we're a Star Trek podcast, so I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about Star <laughs> oh, Trek briefly. Oh, oh, Star, oh, Star Trek is the same, <laughs> goes the same way. Look at um, the original series. We, we you started out with the pilot which had a, a very different format, uh, the, the cage, from the actual series. Mm -hmm. And Gene got to utilize that format in Star Trek The Motion Picture, where you had the captain and you had this first officer, which they, they lost in the series. And then from Motion Picture, he got to use that format in Next Generation. You know, the captain doesn't go rushing off on every little mission. Um, which is which in a sense was more realistic, but it was not dramatic for your lead actor. Sure. Um, so you're you're always serving all these different masters, and um, Star Trek over the years has had to change based on what would sell to the people who were accepting it. You know, um, you they managed to slip in Deep Space Nine being a darker. Um, series that really was different refreshingly so from next generation voyager had a different format but kind of slipped back into the crew exploring unknown space mm -hmm. and then to do enterprise you had to do something that was different we had to do this prequel series which of course you, you had to focus a little more on beginnings Right, on beginnings, because it, it's something that says, oh, this is going to be different. Right. We're going, to tell diff we're going to tell the earlier stories. But then you, of course, run into the fact of people going, well, how do they get from something that looks that technologically advanced to classic Trek, which right. doesn't look as advanced? So, well, yeah. let me ask you a question then, because I know Ed Naha ended up becoming very good friends with Gene. Yeah. You know, were, were you 
you know, at, at, because at, at that time, the creators were so grateful to have people interested in their work in terms of covering Star Trek. Were you doing phoners? Were you actually um, meeting the people that you were talking to? What was your relationship with Star Trek as a journalist uh, well, at that we time? Doing, because we were in New York, we were doing a lot of stuff by phone unless somebody was there in New York. Mm -hmm. um, when I... Uh, eventually got out to LA and uh, got onto the set of Next Generation. I, I, I became good friends with Mike Okuda. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of these people appreciated the fact that you noticed their work. They weren't the, the name at the beginning of the show. You know, right. actors are used to having throngs of fans. The guy who is putting up, you know, the lettering on the set is not used to someone going, wow, that really looks good. I like this idea behind why you did that. And all of a sudden, you're appealing to people who aren't used to that. And I, and I especially liked in later years talking to the composers. I mean, uh, I've become good friends with Dennis McCarthy mm -hmm. and Jay Chataway. And my, one of my first uh, scoring sessions was the Q-Who episode. Mm -hmm. And it was mind blowing to sit there and watch this, you know, 50 piece orchestra play the music live to the film. Sure. Yeah. You know, um, and you'd see this wonderful, beautiful things. score by I think Ron Jones did that one, didn't he? Q -Who. No, no, that was Dennis McCarthy. That was um, Q Who was that? All oh, right, because Ron not, did Best of Both Q Worlds. Was it Q Who? Um, Q Who was the one where he lost his powers? Maybe no, I'm that's um, that isn't that true? Q or Hide and Q? No, Hide and Q was where he wants to make Riker Q. Yeah, I think that was, this was um, I think, third season after Best of Both Worlds. Yeah, so that was um, was that what was that? Are, you know, Aaron. Uh, Darren, was that true Q or I get them all confused? All the puns, I, I get them all I can't confused. They're all one of. big Q episode yeah. in my mind. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. It was yeah. Q who he lost his powers. Uh, they had um, um, uh, I'm blanking on his name now. The actor from um, yes, L.A. Law. Oh, um, Corbin Burnson. Corbin Burnson. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, I mean, it wasn't a big music episode per se, but it was a lot of fun to watch it. And one of the things that fascinated me was. Dennis is doing the act out where the Enterprise is sailing off into space and the music comes with big flourish, stops, and the Enterprise keeps going. Right. And one of the producers who was sitting there going, uh, did we forget to tell you we recut this scene and it's a little longer? <laughs> and Dennis is like, okay, give me five minutes. He plays with his papers. He talks to a couple of players. They go and re and he just stretches it out the time yeah, they need. Yeah. And it didn't sound really any different but it fit perfectly yeah um so Did, you know the composers were great guys ron um was also really fascinating i mean every we all loved his music except for rick herman who hated yeah. it, you know yeah. <laughs> because it was unique to the episodes and we right. can't do that you know um did but, you find in those early days um you know after the first issue debuted but you know, where Star Trek, the motion picture went through all these iterations. What did you think? Did you think Star Trek, the motion picture was ever going to happen? I mean, what, what, you know, and, and kind of, uh, was it something that you hoped to do a set visit? I mean, what, what, what was it? What was, you oh, know, I would like, have loved to have done a set visit. I mean, you know, when I finally did get out there and, and tour the next gen sets, it was amazing. I mean, uh, Mike brought us in through the turbo lift and he said, wait a minute, got to close the doors first. You got to have the full effect. Right. <laughs> and 
I'm standing there and I'll go, okay. And he pulls the doors open and there's the corridor with the ceilings and everything. And it's like, you are there. Mm. You know, someone just turned off the power, but you are there. And it was, it's just amazing. The detail and everything. Yeah, of course the sets for next generation were a lot of them were cobbled together from the motion picture. Yeah. They were enough sets stood for like about 20 years in, in one form or another. So it was, it was really amazing to always to to just be there. Um, Were you guys privy to any uh, any information about uh, specifically the first movie that wasn't for publication? I don't think there was much that was secretive. I mean, because it, it all kept changing from um, Star Trek, which Star Trek Phase Two, and then the movie, mm -hmm. and. You know, even though it probably didn't seem that way, there was sort of an idea that they were rushing things as far as the live action to get things done. Sure. I mean, the movie wasn't really very secretive. Um, well, some aspects were. I mean, the, you know, I, I just specifically, you know, the whole problem they had in post-production. No, no, problems, problems we knew about. Right. Uh, I mean, I, the one thing we didn't find out about until the premiere was... Um, I wasn't one of the people who were uh, privy to uh, screening tickets. So I had to wait online the first uh, day like everybody else. Right. And at the time I was very good friends with uh, Ed Marecki and sure. Ed had organized getting tickets to see it at the Paramount theater at Columbus circle in 70 millimeter. Mm. So I go rushing up from the office. We're online and I think it was snowing that day. We get in the theater and they make the announcement that the 70 mil print hadn't arrived. So we're seeing it in 35. Yeah. Well, and, and, and the reason there were no reason the set, there were none made. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Which and is, that was only told to us when we were seated in the theater. Right. Cause I'm so, sure that was only told to the theater owners uh, yeah. that moment too. Right. Right. <laughs> and, and you saw, you know, certain visual effects looked a little unfinished uh, you know, all the, the, that shot of the Enterprise pulling a space dock that had, uh, you could see the support block sure. on one side. Um, so there were all little things, but you were used to that back then. I mean, even the Star Wars movies, it was like, well, that effect looked great. Oh, that effect looked a little, uh, couldn't use more time on that one. Um, <laughs> that's the way movies were, and you were used yeah. to that. Right. Uh, um, you know, there was, the but I think the thing that surprised everybody was that the movie was not what you expected from the TV show. Right. It was slower. It was more deliberate. It was darker, muted colors. Um, uh, everyone wore what I used to call the Starfleet Dr. Denton's. Sure. Uh, you know, looking for the flap in the back and that sort of thing. Um, as, as nice as the redesign of the enterprise was, there was a coldness to it that the TV show didn't have. Right. And I think we were kind of let down like uh, on that until they did Star Trek uh, two, which of course everyone knows. Uh, I don't few people may not know was initially released as just Star Trek: The Wrath of Khan. That's so correct. On the seventy millimeter prints, right? Because Paramount didn't want to associate the film with the first right. one, <laughs> now, and that it was a big hit, and they said, "Ah, put the two on." 
what was your your um, perception from a business point of view? Because obviously Starlog was the magazine built on the back of Star Trek. You know, yeah. originally that first issue was supposed to be all Star Trek until they realized, oh, it would have to be licensed if you did 100% Star Trek. So, right. you know, it, it, but still Star Trek was the backbone of Starlog's success up until Star Wars came out. But well, it was the launching was there, point. It really yeah, was. Was there a feeling that mo- with the release of motion picture that it would in any how... Um, affect the uh the magazine i mean i i also think it was a, a brilliant this is a time where starlock took really great risks having harlan ellison review it and of course it was a famously uh vitriolic review right. in true harlan fashion of of, yeah. of 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 the movie but that's something that starlock 10 years later would have never done but yeah. it to me i mean it was just it was it was wonderful because well, as much as you he was a name to put on the cover, but we all loved we all loved dealing with Harlan. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, to this day, I'm still proud of the fact that I got yelled at by Harlan Ellison on the phone one day. I had well, who nothing to do with what he was upset about, except that I was the one who answered the phone. Yeah, yeah. So right. I was like, sure. oh, hey, Harlan's on the phone. He's yelling at me. Anybody want to talk to him? No. <laughs> uh, so that you know, it was it was kind of fun. With a lot of the people that uh, we kind of met along the way. I mean, you know. I, I even got a fan letter from Arthur C. Clarke once. So that was a cool thing. Um, but, you know, I, like I said, we tried to be just not condescending or anything on product. And I, I think we generally thought after Star Trek Motion Picture that that was going to be a one and done. Um, we were kind of surprised when Paramount went ahead and said, we're doing a second movie. And then uh, equally surprised how good it was. Well, I mean, it, the they're... The surprise is a little unfounded because the first movie made a ton of money. It no, just it, it no, just it, cost a lot. Right, it cost a lot. Um, but uh, there, at the conventions, a lot of people were just not as, I think, thrilled at the back end. It was like, okay, it's a Star Trek movie. We love Star Trek. We'll accept it. But it really wasn't what we wanted. I mean, some people called it Star Trek the motion sickness. Yeah, well, a lot of that was started with the actors, too. The actors Could've. weren't weren't happy with their situation and well, what yeah, happened. because it really was a, a difficult shoot. Um, sure. That's why, that's the, as the story goes, why uh, Leonard Nimoy wanted Spock killed off in the second movie because he was so unhappy with the way things ran. And then all of a sudden, whoa, hey, I'm enjoying it now. <laughs> Got to unkill me. Yeah. You know? So, uh, I mean, that's, that's the way, way it goes normally. So many projects came and went, um, you know, movies you thought, you know, would be great and they weren't. (laughs) Sure. Well, that was the interesting thing. I mean, you read Starlog, you go back and look at those early issues and their movies, you think, oh my God, you know, it sounds like this is the next, you know, huge thing. I mean, even Shape of Things to Come, I think the only time I ever heard of it was in Starlog. Right. Um, But, uh, you know, if you went by the Battle Beyond the Stars coverage, you you would think this is going to be literally the next Star Wars. (laughs) Oh, Uh, that that picture gave us problems. uh, (laughs) Norman Jacobs, uh, one of our publishers came to me and he said, I think we're going to do a, a Balbi on the Stars poster book. And I said, Norman, you, do you really want to put up a picture of a ship with breasts? And do you think that's really going to sell in the Midwest? Because we got into a whole heck of a lot of trouble with the Moonraker poster book. Mm. Because it showed a little too much side breast. Huh. 
I don't really? know why Midwest readers Then you did worry about what people in the South saw, thought, you know, because mm-hmm. there were areas that were very conservative, you know, where magazines still had brown paper wrapping on, on the uh, bookshelves. Yeah, and the thing that you worry about is it, it takes one person to write to Curtis, who you know, the distributor, and and say have a problem, and then they want all the up all the issues recalled, and your whole print run, and, yeah. and you can lose a ton of money because one person complains, and your distributor somehow gets antsy. You know, particularly right. in or that your era, distributor just says we're not going to distribute the magazine in this part of the country anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, so and you depended on back then. Your newsstand sales were, uh, you know, a large portion of your sale. Um, the funny thing was, when I started with the magazine, one of my first jobs was to, I went around Manhattan trying to see how many newsstands had the magazine because for some mm. bizarre reason, we weren't on newsstands in Manhattan. Mm. You know, even though our distributor was in Manhattan. Right, right. right. Just kind of, and, and, you know, eventually you built up enough of a subscription service that that was your bread and butter. Because the um, uh, the newsstands, if they didn't sell the magazine, would send them back. Yeah, right. and we had to I, actually fight the distributor to get them to actually send us back the physical issues because what was the norm back then was just they'd rip, rip off. off the cover, yeah, right. and throw it out, yeah, right. And because we used them as back issues, we sold them. Sure. Over. So we had a warehouse across the street that uh, we we stored all the back issues. I I bought many of them. Yeah. Until it burnt down 10 years ago, right? It's, uh, 10 years ago, I guess. The warehouse with all the, the back issues burnt, burnt I down. I think that was a different warehouse. The one we had across the street was actually, the building was, I think, owned by uh, Ziff Davis Publishing. Oh, okay. Right, and right, right. They had uh, a spare storage space off the loading dock. So I just had to walk across the street with a hand truck <laughs> and uh, put stuff uh, in there. But um we had one of those, uh, one of the guys who was uh, working with me at the time, Pete Mosen, who was a big Ghostbusters fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pete got that tremendous Battlestar Galactica poster Burger King did, and we had it up on one of the walls because it was the <laughs> only place big enough to display it. Oh, man. <laughs> well, you guys, speaking of Galactica, you did some great coverage of, of yeah. Galactica in those early days of the 78 Galactica yeah. uh, on the special effects. And again, this is pre-Cinefax. So, I mean, and then there was even the short-lived spinoff, Cinefax, uh, Cinemagic, which was about, Cinemagic. you know, for your super, yeah. super eight movies, but right. it also covered special effects and other right. projects. Well, and we do special effects because we're we're helping kid guys do their own effects for their own movies. Because Starlog did the um, uh, the Cinefex uh, amateur film contest. I forget what it was actually called. Right. Um, and we got a lot of great. So we used to sit and watch them in in the office uh, and and go through them. Biggest problem we had was people would use music that we couldn't get clearance on, mm-hmm. so they couldn't uh, you know sell broadcast them or sell them. For that reason, but uh, that was some great stuff that people were doing, you know. And they were sending it to you on film. It wasn't like they were telesending it and putting it on. Well, well yeah, uh, you know, uh, everyone was shooting, uh, you know, eight millimeter. Uh, some people did sixteen, you know, whatever yeah. they can get their hands on. But clever effects. Um, one of the guys that worked for us uh, was doing a lot of early electronic sound effects, so we did a little sound effects record in one of the issues. 
when yeah. it, during this early era, you know, there were, you know, the competition, quote unquote, were magazines like Fantastic Films, Questar. You could argue Omni, but not really. That was more a competitor for future life. Was yeah. there ever were ever a feeling like, hey, these magazines are, you know, cutting into our bread and butter or we should worry about them? Or was there sort of a feeling like, yeah, they're just cashing in. They're not going to last. I think it was a little annoying and a cash in. But, um, you know, like I said, I, I remember buying one issue because one, one of the magazines, I think it was Fantastic Films, because Roy Thinnis wrote an article about the making of Journey to the Far Side of the Sun. Mm. And it would basically he was complaining all through it about what a miserable time he had. I'm like, uh, <laughs> why would you want to put this in? You made me buy the issue so you can basically knock this film that I really like. Right. <laughs> um, so and, and a lot of them, you know, they didn't really put any effort into the covers or they would use just standard stock photos. Right. Yeah. You know, nothing was actually fresh and new. I mean, I, you know, it was. Like I said, pre-internet, so you had to go out and research the stuff. How how much did uh, you know making those? Obviously, uh, the the editors and the publishers, you, you know, cover is such an important decision in terms of um, you know maximizing your newsstand sales. A lot of it was driven, you know, not everybody was like us buying every issue regardless of what was on the cover. Um, you know, it's cover driven. So how much you know when you get into that era of you know, Star Trek, the motion picture and the black hole. And, you know, how, was there much struggle over deciding what would go on uh, covers and what was commercial and what wasn't and how many times maybe you could put Star Trek on the cover and, oh, you know, yeah. it'd be too much. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, if you put it on the cover, you had to have a reason to put it on the cover. It just wasn't a cover photo. Mm -hmm. So it was really important to have some kind of article that when people bought the magazine, they said, Oh, this was worth my, my money. Um, right. That's why, you know, as I said, Star Wars kind of took over the covers because if you didn't have a major summer film, it, it, it's, it basically you didn't get the big sales, the impulse sales that you hoped for. Uh, so when a film like The Black Hole came out, uh, you hoped it was going to be a big hit. Um, I think one of the covers that we did, uh, films that turned out not to be a bit of a bust was Heartbeats. Mm. Oh, yeah, 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 right. <laughs> yes, everyone thought, oh, Andy Kaufman, this is going to be a big comedy hit, and it wasn't. Yeah, no. um, and there were a few films like that where you thought, because we didn't, some films we didn't see in, much in advance. We had to sort of take their word for it when they would right. tell us the plot or show us pictures. Uh, I mean, I remember going over to Paramount to see Raiders of the Lost Ark, and I saw a um, an early print of it with a lot of unfinished effects, and I was completely underwhelmed and thought well, this is not going to do much and look what happened so i was yeah. wrong about that yeah. now it's forgotten yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well yeah. it's easy when you're quarterly to pick those covers but when you're monthly it becomes a lot more challenging very, because yeah, yeah. you it's know to feed important. the beast very important feeding yeah feeding the beast was important um that's that's what sometimes we got to write a lot of esoteric stuff simply because uh, it filled pages when things got uh, lean, you know. Right. Um, some of the early issues had the episode guides before I started doing the guidebooks. Right. Uh, and the episode guides were tough to do because unless you got a, 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 a an episode list from the syndicators, you had to depend on people who literally watched the episodes right. religiously and wrote all that information down. 
The episode guides were indispensable. They were great. Again, this is something when now you go on Wikipedia, whatever, IMDb, people don't realize what it was like to actually have those episode guides, whether it was, you know, B. Joe Trimble's Concordance or, you know, Starlog doing the first Space 1999 episode guide, even, you know, Galactica. And sometimes I remember they do it on a different paper stock, you know, as though you would, you know, pull it out and have it, uh, you know, as a reference. One of them was like a, a, a yellow newsprint insert i forget which one i think b joe did the animated series right and i know gary Girani did uh outer limits for us yeah which were all this stuff was was yeah. fantastic and of course starlight was sort of the thick of the controversy between star trek one and star trek two i think it was originally the new york post that printed the, that Spock was going to die in Star Trek two, but then um, Starla got involved in the whole controversy. And yeah. of course, I think was the first people to print uh, Roddenberry's um, information about Roddenberry's infamous uh, Star Trek two treatment, you know, with Spock killing uh, JFK on the grassy knoll. And that caused quite a bit of consternation as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You had to be careful what you did sometimes. Um, right now there's a picture that, been circling in the last few years that we got before Star Trek II opened, and we it, it had a note posted to it going, "This is for your entertainment only. Do not print this picture." And it was the picture of Ricardo Montalban with the little inflatable robot with oh, her right. face on. <laughs> and they said, "If you print that, he will be upset, and we will never send you anything again." <laughs> so, <laughs> so there was a lot of that going on. Um, uh, you know, and, and we would tell them things that were going on in films that the publicist didn't know about. Uh, right. Uh, I forget who was the publicist for Ladco used to come by a lot. And we were working up a big thing on Outland. Mm-hmm. And we told him some of the stories we were working on. And I was working on the story about the miniatures with Bill Pearson and Martin Bauer. And he's like, who? I said, Bill Pearson, Martin Bauer, they're your chief model makers. And he's looking through the credit list and he goes, I don't have these people on here. Uh-huh. And they would not have got received their screen credit had it not been that I told him. Yeah. Because somehow it got lost and they were supposed to get screen credit contractually. So you, you'd see things that would happen that we know <laughs> things that they didn't know. One of my favorite Starlog uh, articles is Introvision, the future of movies. Oh, we can yeah. now clearly say that it is not. <laughs> well, you know what? To be fair, it kind of the, is. The it LED is screens in Mandal- Mandal- yeah, Mandalorian. Yeah. Is Mandalorian is Mandalorian, yeah. Introvision, yes, yes, you know, yeah, after the fact. Have, yeah, because it doesn't have the look of Introvision. Because yeah. I remember seeing yes. uh, Project UFO, which used Introvision. Sure. And it was like, you knew the Introvision shots. They were so obvious. <laughs> yes yeah but but it was an effect that saved money you know it, 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 tv shows were dying to save money because but, you know of- thanks to awesome. thanks to starlog we learned all this stuff right i, I mean well, it was so- it was the only yeah. it was the only way to right. know about this kind of stuff like the the miniatures on cosmos and the magic cam yeah. and you know all these technologies that filmmakers were actually using. Right. I read about them first in Starlog. And it was it was so interesting and it opened up that world for me and it, it and it made me so interested that I got into the business. Right. I so, mean it wasn't until a couple of years after motion picture 
or a year after the Cinefax published its first issue with telling right. you how motion picture yeah. was made. And that was wonderful because nobody was getting to that detail about right. film production from the visual effects standpoint. Right. Yeah. And no one did again. No. And no who would believe did. there was a TV show called Super Train and Time Express with Vincent Price if it hadn't been for Starlog covering these oh, shows? Because <laughs> I was I was the I was the guinea pig who had to watch all these crazy shows. <laughs> uh, you know, oh, Hirsch is gonna watch it tonight. And I'm like, oh God, I watched another episode of uh, what was it? Um, Outer World or something? Oh, oh yeah, the Outer uh, World with the one with the, the other worlds. And I'm like going, oh God, how many times have I seen this episode? You know, it was <laughs> on. This had to have been a Twilight Zone. I don't know. Right. You, know, you would see all this stuff, and there were you also stuff. covered a fantastic journey fantastic. more than anyone else ever did or ever will. Yeah. <laughs> and that was but another. Show that never completed its full airing. There were episodes right. that got aired. Yeah, and and the Logan's Run TV series was also something. And I think a big part of the fact that we still remember some of this stuff is because you know of the play they got in in Starlog. I mean, I remember the the cover with right. uh, Gregory Harrison, Heather Menzies, and the episode yeah. guide better yeah. than I remember the show. You know, anything about the show? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and, and I was the one who went into the office the next day and I said, "Oh." We know they canceled the show, but damn, if they had more episodes like the David Gerald one, that would have been great. The show would have been still been on the air. It's like it took them that many episodes to get this, get it right, and it's already been canceled. It's a shame. And and I do feel, you know, we we talk about, you know, um, also just for people who are aspiring to work in the business. Um, I look at something like Alan Brennert's uh, three-part making of Flight of the War, which, which yeah. you know, uh, I think yeah, it's just was, a sensational article great. about the making of television. Yeah. Um, and how difficult it is to do things within a short amount of time and lack of budget. I mean, you know, uh, some of the best imaginative things have happened because there's no money. Absolutely. Sure. You wouldn't think, you wouldn't think on even a show like, Space 99, where they had a, a reportedly large budget that they had to do a lot of stuff off the cuff because there was no time, no money to do it. Um, yeah, well, and most and almost any show do, has done that, and some very successfully. You know, the old 50s monster movies where we don't show the monster until the last five minutes because we can't afford to. Sure. Uh, what, when you look back at your tenure with Starlog, what were you know some of your favorite either articles that you wrote or, or the people that you met? Uh, obviously, Jerry loomed large. Uh, Jerry Anderson yeah. loomed large for you. Uh, that was a that was a great relationship. Is there anyone else when you look back that you really had a great deal of respect for and that you were really appreciative for having this experience of having gotten to know them and and to to write about them? Well, I got to know Dave Prouse, uh, even though I turned over uh, the first interview, I turned over to Rick Myers uh, because uh, I had more confidence that he could do a better job. Um, we had him up to the office. We had Sarah Douglas up to the office. Um, uh, a lot of some people I ran into at conventions. Um, it was always the technical people, though, that I was the most thrilled at and that's not sliding any of the actors that i knew over the years um when i did the um the first space convention in 78 79 mm -hmm. um martin landau and i clicked immediately and martin was a big science fiction reader and he would be calling the office every 
month or two asking us to recommend books for him. So it was always kind of fun, you know, having having the receptionist shout down the corridor. Martin Landau's online too for David. <laughs> right, so, sure. <laughs> so, you know, uh, there were it was just just great people, and everyone working there was was so wonderful. Um, I learned a lot about art direction from the art directors, you know, um, some of which I can't remember the names except for Howard Cruz, who passed on recently. Um, it would teach me things about art direction. Howard, uh, Ed Naha, who was an office mate, uh, uh, you know, taught me a lot about writing. Um, I still, to this day, don't know what a pica is. Whenever they go, we need a <laughs> pica length caption for this photo right away. And I'm not going, uh, how many words is that? <laughs> you know? It was just what they heard stuck with me. I haven't heard pica in a long time. Yeah, brings yeah. back memories. Well, you know, it's it, it's it's just from the days of you know steampunk, you know typewriters, setting, and, yeah, and whiteout. Uh, God, I use whiteout by the ton. Uh, and when you'd have to send the photos out to be scanned because they had to create the, the colors, dot mate. Yeah, separate, yeah. Separation. Mm -hmm. They had and to lay out pages like brick walls. Right, right. <laughs> and I had to write on all the slides, photograph this side. Yeah. yeah. Because the um, printers would go by the emulsion side of the slide. And if someone sent us a duplicate, sometimes... Right. Emulsion would be on the opposite side. That's why mm -hmm. photos got flopped all the time. Right. Uh, usually of the Enterprise or the Galactica, always well, printed backwards. <laughs> and it know, happened to well, Starlog. Okay. Yeah. It, no, if the Galactica name was showing up, that really ticked. <laughs> but sometimes you go, yeah, if we flop it this way, it's going to look so much more dramatic. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, I actually created the cover. I think it was issue 17 of the Cylon ship firing on the Galactica, the little Cylon ship. Because mm -hmm. we were talking about doing the cover uh, the cover layout, and I said, "Well, if we take this photo and this photo and put it down, will anyone see the scene between the two photos? Because we it's a black background." And the art director's like, "No." I'm like, "Well, why can't go. we just combine these two and make this unique action shot?" <laughs> it, it's so funny. It, 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 indeed, it was uh, issue number seventeen. What's terrifying is I know that. Um, and, and in fact, I had the uh, the the issue on my desk. I just cleaned my office last week, but I, ha I had it here for some reason uh, yeah. uh, up until last week. I would have put it up, brought it up. Well, but, I, I um, just I just go to the PDFs now. I don't even right. I don't pull them out of the bags since everything's now on uh, Internet Archive. Yeah, sure. Yep, most of the guidebooks are up there. We should let people know about those. Yes, yes. Just in case. Yeah, internetarchive.org. You could find uh, all the star logs. Some of the other magazines are there. Uh, some of the guidebooks. Uh, and there's some older magazines. I just recently found uh, Spacemen, which was huh. uh, a, an early Warren magazine they did around 64 for about six huh. issues, which I was never able to buy when it came out. Hmm. It's so. it's it's truly a great a great uh, resource, and yes. I have yeah. now thanks to that I have all the episodes of Starlog on my iPad yeah. whenever I need them. Yeah. 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 <laughs> oh wow, that's 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 great. Sadly, I I have the print issues up until probably the forties or fifties, I think, and then I I I didn't keep anything after that. But I have like the first. I think the first 40. I really loved the magazine through 20, which was Superman. And then the Star Trek, the motion picture coverage is fantastic. And then, you know, I started uh, 
then then my love affair with Cinefantastic began shortly thereafter. But I mean, what you guys did in the early <laughs> well, days. I read, read Cinefantastic for years, even before Starlog. Sure. Uh, because there were things, and I loved, you, you got to love some of their, like when they did the deluxe double issue of Forbidden Planet, which was, oh, yeah. amazing. Wow. you know, amazing. nobody nobody's going to do a book on this movie, but they did a double issue. Right. Cinefantastic predated Starlog, but it never had the, cir- the same circulation. And also, at least for me as a kid, it was too expensive. You know, Starlog was yeah. cheaper, so yeah. I was able was, to, to it was, afford it. Because it was expensive because it was all on slick paper. Right. Uh, even the black and white issues before they started doing color. And Cinefantastique uh, had a had a wider range. It just it wasn't just science fiction. It was any film that was out of the ordinary. Film right. noir, a lot of foreign films. Uh, so that was eye-opening to me, you know. And he didn't, you know, Fred didn't really... Um... Uh, seek out advertising so yeah. they had the higher cover price where Starlog actually had advertising so yeah. they were able to keep the cover price uh, yeah. lower and then of course a sort of robust merchandising creating like you said the Moonbase Alpha um, the, the the photo guidebooks I mean there was a lot of I mean I remember the, the those crazy jackets there was apparel that the, the oh, Starlog yeah. apparel sure. and even the soundtracks for a while I think yeah, uh, yeah they did um, there was an Albert Glasser Albert Glasser yep. XM yep uh, and then we went into partnership with Verez and did North by Northwest and yeah. right. with Laurie Johnson and uh, It's Alive, mm-hmm. uh, the Bernard Herman score that Laurie Johnson conducted. And then we did his Avengers Professionals album. Right. Uh, so we did a couple of records there, which were which were a lot of fun. I mean, that was Carrie's pet project. I only worked on, um, uh, I think it was Rocketship XM was the only mm-hmm. one that I was actually involved in. Um, and then when did you leave? Uh, did you? I mean, because you were you were still working in a freelance capacity for many years. Yeah, I, um, I left. I left my full time position in eighty two. Um, after I think it was issue seventy four. It was it was a, a Return of the Jedi cover. Uh, Luke, Leia, and uh, in the forest. In the forest. I think that was my last full time <laughs> issue. And uh, about. Two or three years later, when Dave McDonald became editor, um, I, I had already been out to L.A. and met Dennis McCarthy and stuff. And I wanted to write about the scoring session because Dennis had loaded me up with all kinds of terrific information. So I thought this would be an interesting article to write about how they score an episode. Yeah. And Starlog was doing the Next Generation magazine. Right. So I pitched the idea to David. He said, go ahead and do it. Uh, then they wanted me to do Ron and Jay, and I did them. And then I started to do uh, interviews with other composers for the magazine, uh, mm-hmm. like David Arnold, um, which was a blast. And then we did the audio log column for several years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I was like being inundated every week with CDs from everybody. Right. <laughs> did you realize when you were, you know, uh, 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 that last year, 1982, did you have any sense? that this would become sort of the seminal year for the genre. I mean, you know, it's considered by many the greatest geek year ever with Blade Runner and Star Trek II and E.T. and Poltergeist and Conan and Rocky III. There was a lot, but I think at that time, we thought after Jedi, that was the last Star Wars movie. And there mm-hmm. was a sort of consensus in the office that without Star Wars, the genre was kind of sort of waned. Well, there are some who say that it was the last Star Wars movie. I yeah. wouldn't be one of those people. But... I'm a Mandalorian. <laughs> uh, 
Um, that's unfair to Rogue One. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That is absolutely true. That is absolutely true. Uh, you know, but there were always the fits and spurts all through the years until Next Generation came. And I think that started the ball rolling, especially with television, because now you had this weekly series, plus all the other syndicated shows that started popping up. Hercules, sure. Dina. Yeah. Um, War of the Worlds. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Poltergeist the Legacy. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, no, nothing was as good as Friday the 13th, the series. Go yeah. Ahead. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but you know, it, it just, that, that was that heyday in the late 80s of suddenly syndicated television. Yeah. Which hadn't been big in, except in the early 70s when the primetime access rule came in. And you had all those 730 shows. How surprised were you that Star Trek actually came back to TV? I mean, for those of us who, you know, who lived through the syndication era and, you know, Star Trek, the motion picture coming out and potentially being the end of, of Star Trek, uh, were you surprised? Uh, partly, but I, I kind of know that Paramount had always sort of had this idea that Star Trek was going to be their anchor of some kind of network. Right. Uh, before UPN, they did this. Uh, an interesting little story was that when I was out at um, Paramount, when I first met uh, Mike Okuda, uh, one of the things that I was doing when I was going around LA and meeting people like uh, Dennis McCarthy was I was leaving them little packets of samples of articles I've written. So they knew that I wasn't just somebody who was talking up a good game. And Mike called me out of the blue and said, this little thing packet you left here is this a resume and i go what do you mean because would you be interested in, in an art department job and i'm like well you know any other time i probably would have been mike but i had just <laughs> opened the store with my dad and i couldn't leave him in the lurch and one of the things that mike said to me was you know every year at the end of the season we're not sure if we're coming back so i think this was towards the end of the third season and he said, well, you know, it's last in, first fired. So I can't guarantee that if you come out here, you're going to be working if there's going to be another season. And of course, now we see seven years on that show, seven years on <laughs> right. nine, seven years. And it went on for 20 years. I'm like, going, well, if I knew then what I knew now. <laughs> but the fun thing was um, when I started interviewing people like Denise Akuda, I interviewed Doug Drexler. And it turned out Doug got the job that I was offered. Right. And um, as I then, the then Doug, we dodged the bullet getting I Doug dodged, instead of I you. Got, not only did I dodge <laughs> a bullet, but I'm listening to what Doug did. And I'm like going, I could never do half this stuff Doug does. <laughs> and Doug and I knew each other way back sure. from 77 because... He was on the East Coast. When I was doing the uh, Alpha Tech Notebook right. with Jeff Mandel, Jeff Mandel worked on the weekends at... Uh, the Federation Trading Federation Post. Trading Post. Right. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So I'd be at the Federation Trading Post going over things with him. So we all knew each other. And Doug was like, oh, yeah, I remember you coming in all the time and, and talking about Space 99. How dare you? <laughs> no, that was yeah, Doug. There, there's no like, moon based trading post. No. There's a Federation <laughs> Trading no, Post. No, no, no. <laughs> Had we known, you know, now we, what's going on? No, Mark, that would that would be Moonbase Alpha Beta. But I, ha but, I <laughs> but I have to say one thing: I picked up the Space 99 calendar that came out at the Federation Trading Post. They were the mm. only ones selling it at the time. 
<laughs> Take that, Doug. Interesting. So they sold it because they knew where to make a buck. They were smart business people. Because after all, Space 1999 was the son of Star Trek. Yeah. That's what they were telling us. <laughs> I mean, it just, yeah. Well, back then, if you were only going to be selling Star Trek product, it would be tough to fill the retail racks. So it made yeah, sense that, that they yeah, had Yeah, I mean, because unless it was stuff that um, they were getting through Lincoln Enterprises, there really yeah. wasn't much new stuff. Uh, you know, they were able to pull the old toys. I think some of the Mego stuff came out around that time. Uh, um, yeah, a couple of years earlier, but yes. But they did sell a lot of their own product. I mean, I used to go down there and buy slides because right. they would get, you know, special effects slides. And, um, you know, as I mentioned, I, I was friends for many years with Ed Marecki. I worked with him on the 92 restoration. Mm -hmm. And we used to pull together all these slides that we collected for reference shots because you couldn't get anything back then. Right. Mm -hmm. um, that was one of the toughest problems with doing the restoration was nobody had really good photographs of the model that they'd make available to us. I mean, allegedly sure. there were fans who were saying, oh yeah, I've got these first generation negatives that were shot uh, on the soundstage, but I'm not letting anyone see them. Right. Why? But they were the first <laughs> people standing in line saying, oh, what a crappy paint job. And, it, you know, I, the first time I saw the final paint job, I was like blown away. And I, I know it doesn't look like it does on screen, but I thought the model looked magnificent. You know, for something that was only had six weeks to do from start to finish. Right. You know, the, the Smithsonian made a decision at the very last minute. We're going to fix this model up for this big exhibition. Right. Um, they trucked it up to Massachusetts in Ed's workshop. It was there and we were coming up on weekends. Mm -hmm. Some people were flying out from California to help out. Yeah. Right. Steve Horch. Steve Horch. Yep. Um, Tom Hudson, who spent a lot of time. Right. Um, uh, you know, it, it, uh, Gary Kerr did blueprints on the stuff afterwards. And my job was to basically document the whole restoration because the uh, the guy, I think it was Ken Ralston, no, Ken, not Ralston, uh, I know it was Ken something, who was our, our Smithsonian contact, wanted us to do a book, which mm -hmm. never came about. But um, I was documenting the whole uh, restoration. But it was such a breakneck thing. And, you know, I think Ed gets unfair criticism over the work simply because we were doing what they told us to do. Right. You know, from doing the internal wiring to um, making the model look really presentable. But, you know, right. six weeks was it, not. It looked terrible before that. Oh, absolutely. Oh, you know, I used to complain. I, I used to complain about the salad bowl, the wooden salad. Yeah. Bowl. yeah for the sensor dish. Yeah. Terrible. Uh, and there was a lot of lot of work studying photos. Uh, you know, I, I was absolutely convinced that the the um, spires that were on the warp engine in the in the first pilot mm -hmm. was the same spire that was on the deflector dish. Yeah. You know, uh, based on the photos, um, and uh, in fact, where's it? Um, I have here. <laughs> Watch the video there. versions of this podcast on oh, electric. Yeah, there now. it is. This right. is the casting of the bridge dome. Yeah. Because one of the things that was missing from the model were the domes for the top and the bottom. Right. And I looked at this and I said, I think I can come up with a, a good bridge shape. So I found this. 
And this go. is, which you can't, you can't actually get this anymore. It's a 76 millimeter optical lens. I had this in my store. <laughs> and I looked at it and I said, this is the right shape. So we use this as the master for the dome, which somehow mysteriously disappeared because the last time I saw it in the gift shop before the current restoration, mm. the original green domes were back. Right. That were on it way back, you know. So uh, there was a lot. We, we uh, I think the biggest time consuming thing on that restoration was the warp engines. Sure. Uh, you couldn't tell, did they go? Did one go counterclockwise and the other one go clockwise or did they rotate in the same direction because they were reverse the footage? Right. You yeah. know, and um, nobody could remember how the internal uh, mirrors were designed to get the effect. Right. So, uh, you know, at a desperation, it had to use like Christmas lights. Right. And um, I did the, the um, silver striping inside the inner dome. Mm -hmm. uh, we had to do two sets of them because the lights, the original lights were so uh, strong, they melted the domes because one of those right. things the Smithsonian said was, we want the models to stay lit all day long. Right. And that's and not what is... the lighting was designed for. Right. Lighting was designed to turn on, shoot the model, turn it off again. Yeah. And so this is before a... LEDs. That right, they had original car lights. Yeah. It was all from automobiles. Sure. You know, um, we knew they used automobile paint on the model, so... Uh, that he had to put in like neon lights inside and everything. And we had to figure out how to fit it all into it. Right. Um, so there was a lot of trial and error that was all done. I mean, a lot of sleepless nights. Right. And, um, you know, as I said, I think his, I think the criticism was unfair based on what we did and had to do, you know, what we were, we were limited to. Sure. You know, not, not, and, and honestly, I think the model looks, superb now but they had it's like the difference between shooting a tv episode and shooting a feature film sure they had weeks and they had all these professional people flying in and they did it at the smithsonian where they right. had professional tools you know instead of trucking it up to somebody's workshop see how does the enterprise end up at the smithsonian and the galactica ends up at a gift shop in florida I, it's just so unfair <laughs> I don't, I don't, and I, the weird thing was <clears throat> one of the last things that Ed had in his workshop was the Galactica. Mm. And to this day, I don't know if that was the original or not. Um, we thought it was, I mean, it looked pretty accurate and there were pieces missing from it and he had to do, uh, and that could have been the one that ended up in the gift shop, but a lot of models, you know, ended up in weird places. Um, because it was a it was a fluke that the that the Smithsonian got the Enterprise, it was absolutely a fluke. Yeah, it was a fluke, but it was don all that stuff was donated by Paramount. I mean, yeah. they had allegedly, I think there were actually two Klingon ships because right, uh, they ended up with one, and it was repainted. It wasn't uh, the sort of greenish color that you see in a lot of photos. Right, it was all primer gray, and. Uh, we were playing around with it, trying to figure out if this was a copy or not. Mm -hmm. um, you know, um, and Ed had to do the um, uh, the copy of the Tholian ship because they had sure. the um, uh, the Aurora space yacht version, right? A little metal warp engine without the warp engines, and that was another challenge. We were watching the the, the the shots in the episode over and over again, trying to figure out the design of them because there was no. Um, 
no shots of what those warp engines looked like. You had to, we had to guess at things. Well, I would, I would love to read your uh, documentation on this someday. I think that would be amazing to uh, go through because um, I've always found that uh, that the, the second restoration fascinating. Yeah, it it it, it was it was a, a fun time and be able to work on the model because this was a model that meant so much. Yeah, to us as a kid, it's it. I mean. I'm, I'm thankful that I actually got to work on this model. Um, I've actually got to physically handle some of the original Eagles. I have right here. Uh, this is the original 11-inch Eagle nice. from the show. Wow. Uh, it's the one you see in the end title in this configuration. The only nice. time. And then this one got used primarily in Dragon's Domain and um, Mission of the Darians. It got some I want to point out, this isn't a replica. This is the actual shooting miniature. Actual <laughs> that's, shooting. Yeah. Yeah. that's amazing. And I actually have <laughs> several of the different modules that go nice. on this. Um, that's fantastic. That. Um, and um, luckily, Rob Burnett is not here, or he would be uh, glowing green with envy at this moment. You know, that belongs in a museum. Oh, look at that. It's the working com lock. <laughs> the working com. Oh, well, the non working working com lock. Right, right. Yeah. The, uh, the, Jerry TV, the TV tube one. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, Jerry so had cool. an exhibition uh, where you could walk up and see your face on the screen. Oh, that's cool. So it ran all day long. So by the time I got it, not only was I told it probably isn't working, it's a PAL camera monitor. So right, right, uh, of course. somebody to get wow. it to work. That's way cool. Yeah. So uh, I'm kind of wondering if the um, any of the mo um, models that are coming out, because round two is doing a kit of this in the stun right. gun. right. And, uh, and 1612 is doing the, the toys. The working ones, but I don't think the working one looks as similar. But I know Jim Small, who works, who has worked with Round 2, had asked me for specifications on the comic. Mm. So I'm wondering if he did that. And, of course, this is uh, the first next-gen tricorder that Edmarecki built. Right. Or Ensigns of Command. Right. Um, mm. It was... They wanted hidden hinges, so it had these nylon uh, wires here to hold right. the top on, and it broke almost immediately because it was just too delicate. So right. that's why you ended up with those big industrial hinges on them. <laughs> was uh, there? They never had a tricorder before the third season episode. Oh, no, they command. did. They did. Oh. But he, started, he got the gig to do this, and he basically right. uh, supplied them with all the tricorders. I think through Voyager until they redesigned it. Right. Right. So he, wow. did this, he did the medical um, when we had the uh, when the Enterprise was moved up to the um, Hayden Planetarium, uh, Gates McFadden and Sidney El Fadil were uh, there for the opening. And uh, I introduced uh, I introduced Ed to Gates because he was too uh, nervous to go over and meet her. <laughs> and um, she said, oh, you make the tricorders. I would like you to do this to them. <laughs> so he ended up with a laundry list of things that Gates wanted for her, her tricorder. Uh, so that was that was kind of fun. Um, now, see, I, I'd be impressed, but you don't have anything from Space Precinct. So, you know, I'm kind of no, underwhelmed. No, but I do have brains from brains. Thunderbirds. Uh, look at that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I That's used to great. have... I used to have quite a lot of 1999 props that I got through Phil Ray. I mean, I still have... That's the largest of the original moon buggies. Wow. Mm. Um, 
until they start, they had a radio controlled one for the second season, which was bigger. And of course the full size one. Well, yeah, the full size, <laughs> but um, this one actually has a motor in it, but the thing is, is ceramic. It's so heavy oh that if you start the motor, it can't get out of its own way. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why they put a motor oh, man. in. Maybe it's just to get the wheels to turn. Um, the 22-inch Eagle in here is um, a kit that Ed did for me, customized it, but it has some parts that were cobbled from original Eagles. Like I have nice. one of the modules and stuff. So I have some bits and pieces still. But I had a lot of stuff from the show. I had some costumes. I had uh, the Space Dock model at one point, uh, one of the Gwent models. But uh, Greg Jean actually has a lot of the stuff because um, when I wanted to raise money to buy the puppet, uh, mm -hmm. Greg said, well, what are you selling? And I sent him a list and he, he sent me a blank check and he said, <laughs> put in an amount of money. Let me know what it is. And I'll okay. The check. And I'm like, hamana, hamana, hamana. <laughs> you know, at least I know it's, at least I know it's, it's, it's in a good place because yeah. Greg, you know, has a good yeah. collection. Absolutely. Yeah. So in this Renaissance era of science fiction television, you think we'll ever see a reboot of space 1999? Everyone keeps trying to do it. I mean, I always consider the second season the reboot. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Sure. Uh, I do. I do quite. I did quite enjoy uh, Big Finish's audio reimagining of uh, the series. Mm -hmm. uh, they've done Breakaway and uh, another set of, I think, about three or four episodes coming out next month. Mm. So there, it's it's um, that's about as close right now to a reboot. Uh, I did eventually get to work on Terra Hawks when uh, Jerry's son, Jamie Anderson, uh, invited me to write for the for the Big Finish audio series. So that was a lot of fun. Nice. Yeah, That's I got great. to learn how to how to write an episode without being told how the cliffhanger was resolved. <laughs> so I, I wrote it. I write I write this script and Jamie sends back notes. Uh, yeah, we haven't resolved this. Oh, yeah, we're doing this. So you have to include this. And I'm like, uh, OK, but how does that affect the story? Don't worry. Just just put it in. <laughs> well, your your geek bona fides are intact. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, David, this was a ton of fun. It was great uh, having you on the uh, on the show. And uh, again, it's just such a such an important part of um, genre history that we've gone over that, uh, you know, the kid the kids just don't get it. They don't get it. They don't understand. <laughs> no. Everything's available to touch of a button. That's what true. it was like uh, back then, the That's countdown true. for this stuff, the, 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 the longing for more Star Trek, um, the, the, the not having access to uh, rumors even, you know, and, and like you said, you know, having Susan Sackett and uh, David Gerald and Jerry Anderson writing for Starlog. I mean, that was like straight from the horse's mouth. It was right. pretty amazing. And spending a hundred dollars on a video cassette of your favorite movie when it came right. out. Right. <laughs> yep. I, I, I'll never forget seeing Star Trek, the motion picture on VA, uh, beta for the first time and how yeah. exciting it was to, to see that this new technology existed and that it could bring it home. And now everything's going to be home. Unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Warner brothers. Uh, now we have to cry. Now we have to cry the loss of physical media. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, look, great miss, talking I, to you. I miss tower records and Barnes and Noble. Oh, <laughs> I miss tower records so much. I, I just love walking to Tower Records and just browsing yeah. around and things you never know what I would find. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now now you like you put it in the search engine to hope somebody's got it. Yeah. 
random yeah. discovery has been lost. Yes, it has. I uh, I love J and R music world in New York too, but but Tower was everywhere, and uh, well, I, mean, I would just go and shop uh, at ten o'clock on a Sunday night. Right. Oh my God! Totally, totally. It, it's so true. <laughs> and and I mean the the one the Village was amazing. Both those stores, oh, Tower Records that. and Tower Video. Yeah, yeah. And then the one uh, you know uptown by Lincoln Center was also yeah. the one that was in Hannah and her sisters, which I love that one too. Yeah. Yeah. And and then you know when I moved out here, one of the first places I ever went was uh, Tower on Sunset. Yeah, that was so. that was the first place I was ever taken to on my first trip to L.A. We went right yeah. to Tower Records from the airport almost. Wow. Nice. Yeah. That was because we hadn't had a Tower Records in New York yet. Did you watch the documentary "All Things Must Pass"? No. Uh, about Tower Records, it's good. It's good. It's worth watching. It, 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 it's mostly about San, San Francisco, obviously, but um, it's, it's a really interesting documentary. I, I definitely recommend it for anybody who, who spent uh, many mortgage payments at Tower Records. Yeah, now you have to go to, to Tokyo to go to Tower Records. Uh, yeah, yeah. They, no, still, they so. still value physical media there. I mean, uh, on my two trips to Tokyo, I spent so much money between the book and the, and the record stores. Because yeah. you, know, you would just find things that you couldn't get. Yeah. And then now, you know, there's not much could just came out on Kino Lorber, beautiful Blu-ray set. You know, I already had the Australian set, but I had to buy the American set. And um, but, you know, Space 1999, Shout Factory did a beautiful oh, release. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I have, um, I have the network ones from England because mm-hmm. uh, I, I had to get myself an international player to get these shows when they first came out. So you have UFO, which they haven't released here. Yeah. Uh, no, I have the Blu-ray set. I actually have the first version, which has this. Uh, gorgeous book by Andrew Pixley in it, uh, who actually mentions me in the book, which I was like, wow, nobody tells me. Because <laughs> uh, nice. I did the, you know, I did the TV movies while I was at Starlog, right. uh, Invasion UFO and stuff, which mm-hmm. the network actually put out. Um, they remastered it in high definition. Uh, so there was a lot of that. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, look at all the stuff we got out. Criterion doing all the the early Godzilla movies on Blu-ray, which most yeah. people have never seen uncut, including King Kong versus Godzilla. Right. Yeah. That that's that's eye-opening for a lot of people the first time I saw it. So it's it's a it's a different world now. You're seeing things that you only dreamed about, right. or had to stay up to two three o'clock in the morning to watch at, on the on uh, the late 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 show. Sure. Absolutely. Because they were running the bamboo saucer for the first time <laughs> in years, and you've only heard about it mentioned in uh, in brief and famous monsters of Elmer. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, this was super fun. It was but, a great uh, walk down memory lane, and uh, you know, thanks for for taking the time on this uh, Sunday afternoon. And uh, um, hopefully, we'll see Space 2099 one day <laughs> if we're if, if we're good. Or maybe not. Maybe it's best to just leave some things in the hazy recesses of uh, our minds, given the state of certain sci-fi reboots these days. Right. So. If you're desperate, as I said, the audio series is worth a listen. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so there's a lot, a lot of stuff. I mean, you know, I, I'm into the third season right now of Discovery, and, and it's now clicking. It's it's actually working. So it's it's kind of nice that you know, we've got some, we've got a lot of product out there to watch that. Uh, the Mandalorian, which is sadly, I think, closing in on the ending for this season. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of great stuff to watch every week. You're not at a loss for too much stuff. 
Well, great. Well, David, again, thank you for taking the time and um, hopefully uh, there'll be more to talk about in the future. So uh, you take care and thanks again thanks for joining so the Trexperts. Take care, guys. Stay safe. You too. Well, that was a trip down memory lane, wasn't it, Darren? It was, uh, you know, I, people forget that what a what a strange time it was and how slower everything was. Mm-hmm. I mean, not just in, in terms of communication, but in terms of, you know, remember, we only had an issue of this magazine once a month. Uh, sometimes it was even longer, though. But it was it was such a thing to look forward to. And uh, as you mentioned, the, you know, the preview of what's coming next month was always sort of enticing and you were aching to see what was what was in the next issue. Well, it was uh, like on TV next week on, you know, it's next week yeah. on Buck Rogers, you Star know, it's a planet of Amazon women. Yes. Yeah. yeah, but I love the right Princess Ardala is back, you know, and yeah, like, right. so I, I loved it. Sherlock. I, it was such a cool thing that they did. And when I did my fanzine as a kid, Galactic Journal, we did the same thing. You know, what was in the next <laughs> issue and, you know, what the date was. And half the time it was wrong right. uh, because things would change, especially Starlog was a quarterly at first. Right. So by the time they published it, chances are half the stuff they said was going to be an issue. One, but they the date never changed. So right. if they said, you know, coming, you know, August 26th, you know, 1977, you would circle, you know, you would circle it. It's a funny thing. I didn't, the one thing I didn't talk to David about because he said, oh, if we put something on the cover, we always went into depth. I didn't mention that Star Wars, Starlog number seven, where I start, Star Wars was on the cover. And I was so excited. I just seen Star Wars or just, you know, starting to break the news. And I'm like, oh, I want to know all about this movie, right? right? And it's one page, two Ralph Macquarie pieces of art and like about 500 words. And that was the cover story. And it was like, Really? That's your Star Wars cover story? So that's uh, that, uh, that, that are, was the beginning. You're going to have Star Wars in your Star Wars issue? That was the beginning of my disillusionment <laughs> with uh, the, the bait and switch of many, many of these people uh, well, with Paul uh, over the years. Th- despite that issue, they did they did deliver uh, many more yes. things. T- time and uh, time again. Yeah. And uh, as I said, it was it was such a... a, a a window into this uh, wider world of fandom that I had no other connection with because no one at my school really was into this stuff uh, as, you know, as much as I was. And I I did. And, and, you know, it's funny because we had the Galactic Club of Science Fiction when I was growing up, right. That I was the president of here in case you doubt it. Here we go. There we go. Can you see it? There we go. Oh yeah. yes, yeah, yeah. So I was the president. Oh my god! Um, and and uh, and the the funny thing is, we were actually listed in one of those Starlog. It was like the Starlog communications manual with and the yellow pages of Star Trek fan clubs, yeah. uh, Star Science Fiction, fan. and we were in there. So uh, Galactic Club of Science Fiction was there. In fact, we got a lot of members out of that, and uh, you know, through the mail. In fact, some of still uh, uh, friends with on Facebook. Um, so it's it, it, and it's funny because ten years ago I wouldn't have talked about any of this stuff because I would have been embarrassed. <laughs> but it, it, we're now, you know, I'm at a point in my life and my career where I was like, I'm okay. I'll admit the Galactic Club of Science Fiction, but uh, I'm I'm it, it's it, it was a great thing for us. Not um, just the Solar System Club of Science Fiction, but the, no, the whole galaxy. Club. It was gal- the whole galaxy across of the galaxy. Science Fiction. 
but you know, we 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 did little radio dramas, and we did um, you know uh, short stories, and we published uh, you know the Galactic Journal, which which what you know I published through college, which actually you know became very successful. I had the opportunity when I graduated to continue it on a professional basis, and I'm like, no, I'm not doing that. And then, of course, I ended up doing you know. <laughs> many other science fiction yeah. magazines professionally after that with sci-fi universe and with geek and and uh, many such journeys are possible yeah but this is but this was great and it was great to hear you know david's perspective on things um i would take issue with some of his opinions but uh but uh, we're here to celebrate the love that's right that's right it's all about the love and um <laughs> and i'm glad that he gets such joy out of some of uh some of these newer shows the you know but uh that are airing it's all it's all good indeed it is <laughs> you look i mean there's so much that's the thing there's that's why i don't understand like the hatred and the bitterness because that some people have because there's so much that if you don't like a show you don't have to watch it you can watch something else there's plenty to watch you could watch something of- else at two in the morning no, I'm just saying there's always something to watch. <laughs> there's always something to watch. And there's so many franchises that have been rebooted that are active right now that, uh, um, you know, I always, I always laughed uh, about when our, our Galactica book, So Say It, we all came out. Half the response was, I'm not going to read anything that has Galactica name only in it. Right. They were talking about the new. They said, I only want to read about the original. And, and I'm not going to buy this book because it has the new Galactic in it. And then the other half would be like, Oh, I'm not going to read a book that has stuff on that old cheesy show. And it's like, well, I mean, it's just like amazing to me. The book's like 800 pages, yeah. you know, just rip it in half. And it's still a full book on whatever Galactica you liked. You, you're, um, you're the Solomon of science fiction books. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. I don't see myself as a Solomon, but uh, <laughs> anyway. Uh, but this, this this was this was a fun. I hope the our listeners like it. We've been getting some great ideas uh, from um, our listeners for future episodes, and of course, um, as we count down to the holidays, we're going to have a really special treat: uh, Christmas, New Year's week, which is something we've done now two years going. Uh, two years ago, we did fifty great fifty one greatest Star Trek episodes. Last year was fifty one greatest Star Trek moments. And this year we're going to bring you uh, something I think bigger. equally special, bigger, bigger, bolder. It's more <laughs> exciting, but the price is the same, zero dollars. Um, so it's great. But if you do want to spend money, there is Inglorious Trexperts swag available at ingloriousTrexperts.com. Or if you're a fan of our sister podcast, Four Thirty Movies, you can pick that up at Four Thirty Movie.com. Where there's some I great. I prefer to think of it as a sibling podcast. Sure, a sibling. Okay, <laughs> not, not non-binary. Let's, non-binary let's, podcasting, yeah, you know. So, yeah, exactly. So, um, but uh, they're all, you know, it's one giant family. They all live all one uh, big in, happy in fleet. one house. Yeah, they're all one <laughs> big happy fleet, exactly. And uh, again, um, you know, this is this is this is always fun. One of the joys of doing these podcasts by Zoom is the ability to rope in people who live, uh, you know, outside of Los Angeles. You know, right. so many of these people we've interviewed recently, we would not have been able to include, you know, had uh, we been in the studio. Yes, but from I, across the galaxy. I, I hope all our listeners are staying safe and healthy. And uh, if you're looking for stuff to entertain yourself during this continued lockdown, um, you can listen to uh, the best movies ever made uh, as well as the 4:30 movie. And if you enjoy modern Trek, 
Um, you can check out Disco Nights with Chase Masterson and Ryan Britt, where they talk about all the modern and contemporary iterations of Star Trek. Um, so check that out if you're interested in that subject. And um, we'll continue to record 430 movies through the holiday, and then we'll see where we are. But uh, you can also check out our video podcast as well as many other movies and TV shows on the free Electric Now app. You can download that app on the um, uh, any app, app store. And uh, if you're a fan of this podcast, please go on Apple Podcasts and rate us five stars. Not one, not two, not three, not four. Five. Five. There are five stars. And that's right. That's what you see. <laughs> five stars. There are no four stars. Five stars. So you know, and, and we've gotten some really nice feedback. We appreciate it. We do read it from time to time. And of course, if you want to um, be more specific, you can always tweet at us. Tweet at us. That sounds terrible. Tweet at us. You can always tweet uh, on uh, at the Inglorious Trek on Twitter or visit Inglorious Trexperts on Instagram. Um, but until then, we want to thank our production coordinator, Peter Holmstrom, our wonderful sound engineer, the great Bill Ritter. Bill, we miss you. We can't wait to see you in the studio again. And uh, we owe you uh, a, a Shake Shack and, of course, our producer, Natalie Miscali. So uh, until then, on behalf of Darren and myself, Mark Altman, I want to thank you for listening to Inglorious Trexperts. And we hope you'll keep on trekking ingloriously, of course. Engage. This podcast is a production of the Electric Surge Network.